0: It's good to see each of you here uh, today. I know there are a number of us uh, in the congregation who are sick. Uh, We've had one couple in the hospital with one of their children last night. So just always do do be mindful, I should say, of the ways that, that we all just struggle and deal with the realities of life on a daily basis. And so because we are often distracted when we come, even to services like this, and because life is real and hard many days... Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask Him for His help uh, so that He would be with us during this time. Our Father in Heaven, we do come to You and as has been acknowledged by many people this morning, we are sinners. We, on our own, have no ability to understand the truth of Your Word, really. We have no ability to change our own hearts so that we might love You and love Your Son and Your Word. So we pray, Lord, that You would be kind and merciful and gracious to us now. We pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon us. Fill me with your Holy Spirit as the preacher of your word and fill these dear people who will hear the sound of my voice today. We came here wanting to meet with you. We came here wanting to be changed. We came here needing assurance that we are in fact reconciled to you through faith in Christ. We pray that Jesus would be exalted in this sermon, in the rest of this service. And we pray that you would be working. Trust in him in our hearts today. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, friends, last week we began our sermon series through the book of Galatians. The New Testament letter of Paul to the churches of Galatia. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, introducing our text for today because it is such a straightforward one. Uh, Last week we considered just the greeting that Paul gave in the letter, the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1. So if you're new with us this week, it's a good day to be here. Uh, We're getting into the, the first day, the first sermon of the real substance of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And it's important for us to remember As we look at verses 6 through 9 today, that Paul was intimately involved with these believers, right? He was involved in the planting, the starting of these very churches that he's writing to. He would have been one of the men who would have preached the gospel to them. The gospel that saved them. The gospel that brought them from death to life, from darkness into light, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so, needless to say, he would have had a very personal vested interest in the health of these churches. And in particular, he would have had a vested interest with respect to the gospel that was being preached in these congregations. And today, we're going to be looking more deeply into the fact that there were false teachers who were peddling a different kind of message amongst these churches in The region of Galatia, which, just by way of reminder, is West Asia, modern-day Turkey, right? The churches that would have been in this area of the world were being harmed by false apostles, claiming authority that they didn't have, belittling the authority of Paul and the genuine apostles, and were preaching a gospel that was adjusted. This false gospel... Paul was going to say, of course, there isn't another one. But this false gospel had apparently gained some traction in these churches. Paul would not, we trust, would not have written this letter the way that he did if it were not the case that many in these churches were being affected, were being won over by this false, adjusted gospel. And as I said last week, I don't think this is being too reductionistic. The letter to the Galatians, friends, is essentially about the gospel. It's about that question. What is the real biblical good news of how sinners can be reconciled to the holy God of the universe? That is the million-dollar question of this letter, arguably of the whole Bible, and certainly of our lives. And so throughout this series, that's what we're going to be considering For months, at least when I'm in the pulpit, at least for the foreseeable future, we're going to be considering what the real gospel is and what it isn't. That's a great thing to do as a church. We always say this. We never move beyond the gospel. The gospel doesn't just exist as like the entryway into this thing called Christianity. We live every day in the truth of the gospel because we live every day by faith in the Son of God. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, Uh, we're going to try to put, I think the verses up here on the screen during the sermon, but if you have a copy of the text in front of you that will only serve you well, open them up to Galatians. That should be no surprise to you that that's where we're headed. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 is where we will begin our time today. And as I've already mentioned, we're going to consider Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9 this morning, and I'm going to read those verses for us now. This is the Word of God. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. My plan for today is to ask and then attempt to answer four questions. Four questions. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. and then It's going to flow, I hope anyway, as you look at the text. These questions just kind of rise out of it. And we're going to try to deal with those in a straightforward fashion. Question number one is, what is the distortion of the gospel that Paul is writing about? What is the distortion? That's begged from verses 6 and 7, where Paul tells us and is asking or is stating to the Galatian Christians that he's shocked that they're so quickly deserting God who called them in the grace of Christ, and they are turning to another gospel. And he says, there's not another gospel, obviously, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort. The, the word there is to pervert. It's a strong word. It's a twisting. It's a manipulating of the truth. That's what's going on here. So that's the question. What is this distortion? Well, put quite simply, it's that these false teachers were telling the Galatian Christians that alongside faith in Jesus, alongside faith in Christ, works of the law were necessary for salvation. Say that again. These false apostles, these false teachers were saying that alongside faith in Christ, words of the law were necessary for salvation. You can see that as you read the, the letter uh, in its entirety. You'll, you'll find a number of places where this becomes clear. You can see what Paul is arguing against by the arguments that he makes. So you'll see in chapter 2 and verse 16... Paul will be very clear. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Chapter two and verse 21, where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death had no purpose whatsoever if righteousness in any measure comes through the law. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. I'm just giving you some highlights here. Just giving you reasons from the text that I'm saying what I'm saying. Paul says there, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's a rhetorical question. It's the latter. You received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So even in your ongoing life, is this by the Holy Spirit or is it by your works? Of course it's by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3 and verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So this is an all or nothing proposition. Right. If you're going to be justified by your works in any measure, you better keep all of them. You better keep the entire law. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Again, I'm just going to read these to you. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it uh, or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ, This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, that is the promise, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Again, so we're contrasting the promises of God with your works in keeping the law. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 simply state that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might fulfill it and redeem those who are under the law. That's us. So He is going to fulfill the law so that those of us born under it might be redeemed. right? And then finally, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, is a very powerful argument where He will again talk about the fact that Christ is of no use to you. In this particular instance, if you accept circumcision as necessary, but you can substitute any work in there, circumcision, any other work of the law that you want to throw into this equation of salvation, as soon as you do that, Christ is of no use to you whatsoever. So those verses and many others are the reasons why I say that the false gospel being preached was that alongside faith you needed works in order to be reconciled to God. So it does seem, like I already alluded to, that circumcision is particularly in view at certain points. Absolutely. But Paul also speaks in general terms about the law. So we're not just talking about that narrow issue of the ceremonial practice of circumcision, that covenant sign. We're talking about a more broad thing in terms of works of the law in general, in addition to circumcision. So the way that I stated this distortion, this perversion, is important. You remember I said that these false teachers were teaching that alongside faith in Jesus, you needed works. Didn't say instead of faith in Christ. That matters. There's a difference in saying instead of faith you need works. But if you say, well, you need faith, but you also need works, that's a different distortion. So it does not seem that the false teachers are pitting faith in Jesus against keeping the law wholesale. It seems that they are just simply making an addition, right? They're making this small addition of a work here and there, circumcision, other works of the law. They're just adding that to faith in Jesus. What's the big deal? Let me illustrate the difference between saying you are justified by works of the law rather than faith and saying you're justified by faith and works. Let's take the issue of circumcision in particular. These teachers were not saying that people were justified by being circumcised. That's not the argument. Get circumcised, you're right with God. Nobody's saying that. But what they are saying is that you can't be justified without it. Or to put it in general terms, of the law. It's not that you are justified wholesale by keeping the law. It's just that if you don't keep the law, at least in some measure, you are not justified. You can't be justified without keeping the law. Yes, you need faith in Christ, but you need these other works, these things. And so friends, let's just be real here for just a moment. To add any aspect of the law to faith in Jesus is a perversion of the biblical gospel. And not only that, not only is it a perversion and a distortion of the biblical gospel, it belittles the work of Jesus very much. So if you do this, if you start to say, well, yeah, you need faith in Christ, but you also need this in order to be justified. If you start to make that argument, yes, you need faith in Christ, but you need these works of the law. It's as though you're saying, you know, Jesus is great. He's done a really good job getting us started on this salvation thing. But we really need Moses to come and do what Jesus couldn't finish. We need Moses to get us across the finish line. To really bring us home. Because apparently what Christ has done in the place of sinners did a lot of it. Maybe even almost all of it. But it didn't do the whole thing. So you can't mingle or mix law and gospel without perverting the gospel. You can't mingle law and gospel without perverting the gospel. It's important that we keep these distinctions between the two. Take the words of Martin Luther, not just my words here. One of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation said this. He said, either Christ must remain and the law perish, or the law must remain and Christ perish. For Christ and the law can by no means agree and reign together in the conscience. Where the righteousness of the law rules, there cannot, there cannot, excuse me, the righteousness of grace rule. One of them must give place to the other. So if righteousness of the law rules, then the righteousness of grace through faith in Christ cannot rule. It's one or the other. It's an all or nothing proposition when it comes to this question. So that was the, the first question of my four, is what is this Perversion. What is this distortion of the gospel that Paul is addressing? Second question, and this is going to be the longest of the four. The first two will be longer than the second two, just so you know. Uh, So question number two is this. We've talked about the distortion. Well, brother, what's the real thing? What is the gospel? What is the one gospel that Paul is defending? And I would suggest that Paul in this letter... Inspired by the Holy Spirit is is contending that people are justified completely by faith in Jesus apart from any works of the law and that once they have been justified believers continue to live by faith in the Son of God and in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The main argument, the gospel as Paul understands it is that people are justified completely by faith in Christ apart from any works of the law. And that once we have been justified, we continue to live by faith in Christ and in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. So I've said this before, and I'm going to keep beating this drum. And this is part of the reason that we read Genesis 3 today. The Bible, one way to summarize it, is that it is a story of two Adams. The first one, Adam, the first man, in whom we fell. And then the second and greater Adam, whose name is Jesus, in whom we find redemption. So there is one covenant of works in the whole Bible. And it takes place in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There is one covenant of works. And it's the one that God made with Adam. He tells him to fill the earth and subdue it. He tells him to have dominion over all the creatures. He tells him, he commands him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a covenant that he made there with Adam, saying, if you do as I have said, and if you avoid these things that I have warned you against, then all will be well. And if, God doesn't deal in hypotheticals, but if Adam had kept this covenant, if he had done the works that God had required, sin and death and all of those horrible things would never have entered the world. But you see that Adam, we know that Adam and Eve, the first human beings, our parents, they did not keep the covenant of works that God made with them. They transgressed it. They violated it. They sinned against God. And then the punishment, the penalty, the curse came as a result of that. So every human born under Adam is born under the curse, is born fallen, fundamentally corrupted. And that's why God had, in his plan of redemption, this covenant of works was instituted. It failed because Adam failed. But then God Institutes a covenant of grace. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I am sending one. Who will crush the head of the serpent. I am sending one. Who will literally undo this curse. And I am sending one. That will fulfill the covenant of works that I made with Adam. Where Adam failed he will succeed. And in him you will find redemption. So this is how I would contend. This is how we should understand all kinds of passages in the life and ministry of Christ. Take, for example, the the classic account of his temptation in the wilderness. The main point of that text, like hands down by miles, is that Adam was tempted in a paradise, had everything going for him and fell. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, has nothing going for him. He succeeds. He trusts God. He does not sin. That's the point. The new Adam is on the scene. Redemption is coming because he is failing where the first one fell. This all matters, friends, because as you start to think in these terms, you realize, okay, humanity had essentially one shot to keep a covenant of works. And it didn't go well. Now it is of grace. And we must have a representative who will fulfill That original covenant in our place. And so we see that not only is there a perfect righteousness. God is clear about this. His standard is perfect righteousness. And we don't have it. We can't achieve it. We can't work for it. We can't even pray our way there. Somebody standing in our place had to accomplish that righteousness. And that is part of what Jesus came to do. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law in every way. He kept a perfect covenant of works with His heavenly Father. And He did that as your representative and mine. Being truly God and truly man, He could stand in the place of men and provide His righteousness to us by faith. And then in addition, we understand from the scripture, not only do we need to have this positive righteousness, but we need to have our sin debt, the debt we owe God, the penalty we deserve. It needs to be paid because God is a God of perfect justice. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He deals with evil. And so somebody either I am going to have to pay the penalty and bear the wrath of God for my own sin or there's going to have to be a representative who can stand in my place and take the penalty and bear the wrath and that is also what Jesus came to do so as you're as you're listening to this i hope what's dawning on all of us and is washing over all of us is that man like after the fall after genesis 3 in a genesis 3 world there's no way that i could do works To earn righteousness. Jesus had to be the one to do it. Second. After Genesis 3. I'm either going to be consumed in one sense. By the wrath of God and bear it forever. Or somebody has to bear it in my place. And that had to be Jesus. There is no room in this conversation. About our righteous standing before God. For our works to contribute anything. When you start to think in these terms. I could never, the covenant that had to be fulfilled, I could never keep it. The debt that had to be paid, I could never pay it. Jesus and only Jesus could do it. And then what Jesus accomplished in our place as our representative is counted to us by faith. It is received completely by faith. And God has worked this way from the beginning. The most obvious example in the Old Covenant is that of Abraham, where he believed the promises of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This has always been how God is redeeming his people. A question, this is still in thinking about the real gospel and what it is. And this is kind of, I'm moving from maybe just propositional stuff into implications for us here. A question that I want on my mind all the time, and thereby I want it on your mind all the time, is this question. How does the gospel apply to the Christian? How does the gospel apply to the believer? I think we can easily answer the question, how does the gospel apply to the non-believer? Okay, well, yeah, they need to turn from sin, trust Christ, and they'll be reconciled to God. Got it. But then... You're going to press me what does the gospel mean for me how does it relate to me now that I have been justified to put it another way it's a, just a restatement of the question is what is the role of faith in sanctification what is the role of faith in the Christian life not just the front end not just the start but the whole thing Galatians 2:20, Paul says this, "The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me." That is an ongoing reality. That is not just at one point in time I trusted Christ, I was reconciled to God, and now I go live in my own strength. Now I go live and keep the law. That's not what he says. He says, I continually live by faith in the Son of God. So I fear, I fear, I pray this never happens here at CBC, but I think, humbly, I think that in many churches, we would be happy to formally acknowledge Galatians 2.20. Yes, we live by faith in the Son of God. Amen, brother. Praise the Lord. But then, I fear that functionally and practically, the way Doctrine and the way sermons are preached and the way we aim to live, it is something a little bit different. It's as though Paul says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faithfulness to the Son of God rather than by faith in. There is a world of difference between faithfulness to and faith in. And now, before I say anything that I'm about to say, I want to be very clear. I don't want to be misunderstood. Should we strive to be faithful to Jesus? Absolutely. Should we pray that we would be faithful? Yes, absolutely. Should we encourage and stir one another up to faithfulness to God? Yes, absolutely. And amen. I would never say otherwise. The Bible is clear about those things. But then, here's the kick. here's the thing. I would say, I would contend, and I just want us to be wrestling with these things as a church as we're going through this letter. The way that we achieve, for lack of a better way of saying it, the way that we achieve faithfulness, spiritual health, in our church or in our lives individually is not what we would naturally think. You don't grow in faithfulness by emphasizing faithfulness. That's not biblical. You grow in faithfulness by emphasizing faith in Jesus and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to unpack that for just a minute. So when we talk about the kind of culture that we want at CBC, we'll talk about big, biblical, high-level stuff. Like, we want a church full of people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want a church full of people who love each other like genuinely, love your neighbor as yourself. We want that kind of love flowing all throughout this congregation. We want a congregation full of people who are self-aware, for lack of a better way to say it, of our own sin, right? And we are charitable and loving and gracious in how we walk with others as a result of our own self-awareness. We want people who are growing. We want people who are growing. In faith, in grace and knowledge, right? We want people who are responding in increasingly mature ways to sin. Responding in increasingly mature ways to temptation and trial and the bends in their own frame. We want that desperately. We want people, here we go, who meditate on the word of God day and night. We want people who cultivate time with God in prayer. We want to be a church full of people who come to services like this. And who are intimately and enthusiastically involved in the life of the body. That's what we want. I could go on. I could list a ton of other bullet points of things that we pray characterize us. But then here's the the question. Well, brother, that sounds really good. It's biblical. How? How do you go about building that? So I was having a conversation with a man. In this congregation, he will not be named at the present moment. Uh, we were having a coffee together this week, and we were having a conversation about a number of things, but one of the things that came up was this you know, just the culture of CBC, what we're wanting to see, and what we're wanting to see the Lord do and work in this group of people. And then the question comes up all right, brother, how do we do that? How do we pull this off? And especially if we don't want. If we don't want it to be this law thing and we don't want it to be this code thing and we don't want it to be legalistic or binding or whatever, how do we pull it off? To which I was like, not 100% sure how to answer that question in a fine like seven point answer. But the answer that I gave him was this. And I would, I've said this a few times recently, I would state. My ministry on this, the way that a healthy culture in church is going to be achieved, is by a very simple thing, a formula that's simple. You preach Jesus. You hold him out to people every week. You point people to him every week from the pulpit. We administer the Lord's table. We come together as the body of Christ to the person and the work of Christ at this table every week. And then we trust the Holy Spirit. There you have it. We preach Christ. We administer the Lord's table. And we trust the Holy Spirit. Now underneath that there's all kinds of wisdom things we can talk about. There's all kinds of common sense things we can talk about. But that's the biblical approach to a healthy church and a healthy spiritual life. Is that you are partaking in these things? This is a very simple reality. It is word and it is sacrament. Word of God preached, sacraments rightly administered, and that's it. That's it. So, as I've said, we will use wisdom, I pray, underneath those high level things. We will use common sense underneath those high level things. We will apply the ordinary means that God has given us underneath those high-level things. And we will always understand that it is the preaching of the gospel, Christ, trust Christ, the administration of the Lord's table, and the reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God that will build this thing. And that's what we will do. So that's question number two, is what is the one gospel? And I kind of gave you the, the gospel itself. We are justified to God, reconciled to Him completely by faith in Christ. Apart from anything we do, we trust Jesus and His work in our place. And then that has significant implications for how we live together and do ministry. Question number three. Question number three. The last two will be briefer. Does it matter who the messenger of the gospel is? Does it matter... Who the messenger of the gospel is. And so I'm going to play the game. And I'm going to step in the trap. No. It does not matter who the messenger is. Look at verse 8. Paul is making a very strong argument. He uses hyperbole here. He says there's not another gospel in verse 7. But you've been troubled by these people who are preaching this false gospel. Now in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven. Should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's going to reiterate this in verse 9. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, the one that saved you, let him be accursed. So obviously if Paul is pronouncing a curse, judgment upon someone who would preach a different gospel, he's obviously saying, don't listen to somebody. Don't heed anything. That somebody like that is saying the we of verse eight. But even if we would, I understand Paul to be talking about himself, talking about the other missionaries who planted the church and even perhaps the other apostles that this church in Galatia would have known of. So even if I, Paul, who started this church Or even if one of the other guys involved in starting this church or an apostle like James or somebody from Jerusalem shows up and starts preaching to you a different gospel, don't believe it and let that man be cursed. The judgment of God upon him for preaching this false gospel. And then he's going to say, even if hypothetical situation, even if an angel from heaven shows up and is saying something different to you, don't believe it and let that angel even be cursed by God. Point being, the message of the gospel is what matters. Who the messenger is, is relatively insignificant. And so there's a lot, I mean it's, it's almost, I almost want to use the word irrelevant. Who the messenger is. The message is what matters. So, we're going to think more about the local church in just a minute, so I'm going to save a little bit for that. But at a minimum, This is a tremendous call on the part of the Apostle Paul to discernment for us as we listen and evaluate and discern the doctrine that somebody is preaching. So I think in today's day, we are susceptible to being enamored with what we might call the the celebrity pastor type guy or the celebrity preacher, you know, the, the YouTube sensation or the podcast sensation or whatever. Pick your favorite. We all have them. There's good in that. But what this text says is that you should not take the teaching of any person and just understand it to be authoritative and true simply because of who the speaker is. Never. I don't care who. I don't care if it is your favorite theologian, living or dead, whether you're reading a book of a dead person or... Maybe listening to a sermon audio of somebody who's no longer living. Or you're listening to a living person. I don't care. Don't care who. I don't care how highly he is thought of. Or she is thought of. If you're (laughs) listening to a a message from a female on, on whatever topic. And so we have to be discerning in assessing the truth of somebody's message. So Paul will exhort believers in the book of Acts to search the scripture as they're being taught the scripture. This is one of the reasons why it's just great in our day when we have the Bible so easily accessible, when we're preaching it, look at it, evaluate it. We'll use language like this when we're preaching. We'll say, hey, here is my understanding of this. You judge my interpretation. Because I would never want you, Branton would never want you, Ron would never want you, none of us, nobody in this pulpit would ever want you to just take our word wholesale because your pastor said it. The message is what matters, not the one giving. I think that's straightforward enough, so we're going to move to point number four, question number four. And that's this. Whose responsibility is it to guard the gospel? Whose responsibility is it to guard the gospel? Short answer, it is the congregation's responsibility to guard the gospel in their local church. It is the congregation's responsibility to guard the gospel in their local church. Where do I get that? Why do I make that argument from this text? Well, you notice that when Paul addresses this letter, you can see it as easily as I can in verse 2. He writes to the churches, the assemblies, right, of Galatia. This letter is not written to the elders of the churches of Galatia. The overseers. This is not written to some bishop, like overseer, senior. This is not written to the bishop of Galatia. This letter is written to the congregations of the churches of Galatia. And Paul is, beginning in verse 6, saying, I'm sort of shocked by the fact that you, plural, all of you, are turning from the real gospel to a false one. Implication? You all have responsibility in this. You all have culpability here in turning from the real thing to the false thing. It's not just the job of a bishop or the job of the pastors to guard the gospel. It's in fact the job of the entire congregation to guard the gospel and to guard the message. So we understand here at CBC that God has given authority. From passages like this, you can go to 2 Timothy where Paul will talk about the fact that there will come a day when people will put around themselves teachers who will say what they want to hear. Implication, people have say in who their preachers are, right? There are other texts, Hebrews, the letter to Hebrews will talk about leadership and submission to it. There's also talk in the letters to Timothy about how to deal with an elder who is in sin, how to remove him, things like that. And the churches involved. And so, the way that we would encourage you to think about this is you guard the gospel by sitting and listening to messages, being good Bereans, evaluating the messages in this church according to the scripture, and then you have a say as a congregation in who your pastors are. We lead you, that's true. It's God's good design that a church would have pastors. But you, as you know, in the ways that we do things here have a voice in who the pastors are. The pastors will nominate men to serve, and then the congregation must affirm that nomination. You must affirm the recommendation and the leadership that we give you. We never just unilaterally make decisions about who the pastors are. And so, as you're listening to this and you're thinking about guarding the gospel here, what I'm about to say I mean with all of my heart, and I'm confident that the other two elders, the other two we have right now, would... Completely agree with me. So, if I start preaching a gospel that is contrary to the biblical gospel, please fire me. Fire me. Like, use the mechanisms in place that are there, they're in our Constitution. Fire me. Get rid of me if I start preaching a message that is contrary. To the message of the scripture. And if I ever start preaching a message. That is anything other than you are reconciled to God. Justified completely by faith in Christ. And you live by faith in the son of God. And reliance upon his spirit. If I ever start burdening you. With a bunch of code and law. And well here's how I think we ought to do things. Fire me. That is an implication of this text. And Brant and Ron, I'm sure. Would say the exact same thing. Get rid of us if we ever start preaching something other than the truth. Together, this is a, a group project. Together, we guard the gospel. We guard the gospel. And so as, as we're drawing this sermon to a close, I said this, Brandon and I had a very brief interchange before the, the service last Sunday, just about our gratitude for the church, for the local church. CBCS, yes, but just the local church. And I've been thinking recently about about the fact that I I need the church, and, and so do you. We all need each other. And in particular, this week, just been thinking about it in these terms. Life is hard. Life is complicated. Suffering happens. And God, I think, if we're thinking about the church and its role in my life, I don't think this is how many people in the States would think about church. But biblically, God has given us the church in order to sustain our faith in Jesus. God has given us the church to sustain our faith in Jesus. It's that big of a deal. He hasn't just given you the church so that you can come and get some helpful tips on how to live this week, He hasn't given you the church just so that you can have friends to kick it with. He hasn't given you the church just so you can take your spiritual vitamin once a week or whatever it is, right? Or come and feel good leaving or, or however people look at it. God has given you the church very much in order to ensure that you and I make it to heaven and that we actually remain in the faith and continue trusting Jesus. So I want us to be thinking in those terms, like, I need the church. I need the gatherings, even like this, of the church, in order to sustain my faith in the Lord Jesus. This is so far from any kind of legalistic understanding of church involvement, right? Where it's just like, oh, well, I need to go to church today because I need to tick the box, or I'm going to feel guilty if I don't, or some kind of Christian view of karma. Like, you know, if I don't go to church, I'm going to have a crappy week or something. Right? It's so far from that that you get it. You're like, no, this is life and death. This is heaven and hell. And life is difficult and I need the church so that I can keep trusting Jesus. And that happens through the things that we were just thinking about earlier. You need the church. We need the church because we desperately need to sit together under the preached word of God like this every single week. We need that. Because the preaching of the word points us to who? It points us to Jesus. It points us to his person and his work. And then we need to come together, which we're going to do very, like, it's going to be a wonderful, tangible picture of the body of Christ coming together to this table. In just a minute, what's that about? We're coming to the person and the work of Christ by faith at the Lord's table every Sunday. To be reassured that in fact God is right with me. And then we also desperately need each other to be continually pointing one another to Christ. So you've heard us say this so many times. You need the word of God. You need the sacraments. You need the Lord's table rightly administered. And you need the people of God. All in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. If you're going to make it. And so, this is how we as pastors would want you to process church attendance. Like, why do you get up and come on a Sunday when it's raining and the kids are a disaster or whatever, you've got car trouble or whatever it may be. And it's like, oh my gosh, like it just feels so difficult to get there. I think in these terms, like, man, I, I want to go. I want to be with the people of God. They're going to point me to Christ. I want to go to the table where I can be visibly, tangibly reminded of what Christ did for me. And I want to go, and i want to sit under the preached Word of God so that I'll be pointed to Christ and His righteousness that is mine by faith. Because my week's been hard, and next week might be harder. And I need that assurance. And if we have this kind of mentality, then we will be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul, This life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you and we just, first of all, want to thank you for Jesus and for his perfect life and for his death in our place. For your wonderful, gracious plan of redemption where sinners like us can be with you forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to use the means that you have given us, that you would use your word, that you would use the sacraments, that you would use the church, and most of all, Father, that you would work through those things by the power of your Holy Spirit to keep us trusting in Christ. We pray that we, together as a body, would be able to stir one another up in the full assurance of faith that we are, in fact, reconciled to you, We pray for you to continue to be with us now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.